let's just remember that uh, these times of encouragement, of sharing the peace that we have in Christ, again, are, are not just, you know, again, transitional types of services, kind of obligatory greeting type stuff, but they are a part of our worship. One of the reasons that we're commanded by God to gather and worship and not forsake assembly is not just so preachers have a verse to guilt people for not coming to church. It's like, it says so that you may encourage one another. You know, it's not just to come hear somebody teach or preach or sing or hear your favorite songs. It's that we might have fellowship together where we see one another's faces, where we encourage one another. And we know due to coronavirus, there's some that aren't here this morning. Others are sick or college students are gone. And so I'm not a televangelist, but if I was, we could look at the camera here and point or do something. Sow that seed. That's a joke. I'm just kidding. But uh, is for us to, to just know that, that you're, you're just as much loved, even if you're not here this morning. But today, we're going to jump into a little December series in the first two chapters of Matthew. We want to see that how Jesus came into this world was really a, a really messy situation. It was a tough situation. It wasn't easy. And because we're a church that believes following Jesus means taking the good news to the broken, burnout, and the bored, is we want to be honest about the great hope that we have in the gospel. But we want to see that the hope of the light of Christ comes to us in the backdrop of darkness and a lot of dysfunction and a lot of mess, and even, you might say, disaster. And we're going to see that in these first two chapters of Matthew. But this morning, we're going to look at this very beginning of Matthew, which probably many of you, if you read the Christmas story, read it as families, as individuals, you might kind of skip over this part. Or you might read it really fast. I remember my first times reading through the Bibles when I would come to these sections of family trees or what we call genealogies. I would sometimes just be tempted to skip it, or I would just go down through and read the names really fast. And so today, though, I think we're going to see this is inspired by the Spirit to be in God's Word, not because it's a throwaway piece of Scripture, but there's good news here for God's people and for the world. So you can read along in your Bible, or we have it up here on the screen. Matthew chapter 1. I should have got the King James out. I was telling some of the guys earlier because you get to say begat so many times, but we'll say father. But no, begats actually really may be better. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Maybe we're doing pretty good with the names so far. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, just pause, in all these names, it kind of builds up the tension because I know where we're going, but just hang in here, I know it feels like a lot because 
I think you're going to be surprised by some things like I was. So verse 12 again. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abiad. And Abiad the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim the father of Azer. And Azer the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Akim. And Akim the father of Eliad. And Eliad the father of Eliezer. And Eliezer the father of Methan. Methan the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that you give us in your word. We come into this text today, God, with hopes knowing that all Scripture is inspired and is profitable. And we pray to God, to you today, Father, that you would help us to be present. To really be here because we know you are really here with us and for us. Help us to listen with ears of hope, with honesty. And may you give us grace, God, to live out what you call us to from this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Mom got drunk and Dad got drunk at our Christmas party. We were drinking champagne punch and homemade eggnog. Little sister brought her new boyfriend. He was a Mexican. We didn't know what to think of him till he sang Feliz Navidad, Feliz Navidad. Brother Ken brought his kids with him, the three from his first wife, Lynn, and the two identical twins from his second wife, Mary Nell. Of course he brought his new wife, Kay, who talks all about AA. Chain-smoking while the stereo plays, the first Noel, the first Noel. Some of you are singing with me, I know right now. Carve the turkey, put the ball game on. Mix margaritas when the eggnog's gone. Send somebody to the quick pack store. We need some ice and an extension cord. And I won't do the rest. No endorsement of the song, as usual. Any in movies? Merry Christmas from the family. Some of you know this song. Some of you are familiar with it. Others of you may not. But it's a song that resonates with so many people in the same ways that many of you, if you would admit it, think Christmas Vacation is maybe the greatest Christmas movie there ever was. Again, no endorsement. There's even a Saturday Night Live skit. It's called a Dysfunctional Family Christmas Album where they go down through songs of how, how when you get together, everybody join in the group denial. Everybody force a smile. It's family Christmas time. And there's a reason why these things resonate with us, even those of us who are followers of Jesus, but especially in the world all around us, is because all around us, these kind of songs feel like, and, and stories, give us kind of a relief. Because we all deep down are thinking like, I've got this mess in my life. I've got this craziness in my life. And honestly, when you talk about Jesus and when you talk about church and Christianity, it kind of just makes me feel guilt for sh and shame and fear. Like I just don't measure up or my family just doesn't measure up or no matter how much I try to hold it together on the outside for everybody because it's the holidays, I'm falling apart. Many of us don't draw near to Jesus in this season and we think maybe he doesn't draw near to us because of our sin or our suffering 
Maybe our family history, maybe our family presence, maybe our lack of a family. And what this text is calling us to this morning is we're going to see is that Jesus does not want us to play pretend. And if we know who Jesus really is, whom we might call the real Jesus we see here in his birth in Matthew 1 and 2, then we can learn that messed up, mixed-motived, sinners, sufferers, people with hard histories, with family trauma, with personal problems, with deep doubts, can share in the gift of Jesus at Christmas. I'll be honest, there's some days where I, I just... I just think, how, how will we make it? You're in a family where so many people have so many different expectations even about what Christmas should be about. You have so many emotions that get involved. Everybody's judging things based on their past. Everybody's judging things based on how the experience of the present or the future should go. People get frustrated. There's some people around us who have no family to experience Christmas with. There's some people here who will be going through another Christmas where you're just remembering a bad memory, maybe a death in the family. And we wonder, what does all of this remember the reason for the season? Chipper, happy talk really have to say to me, to our neighborhood, to our world. And we find it, surprisingly, I think, starting off in the Gospel of Matthew in a, in a family tree. And the reason we'll get to in a minute why I think this family tree is how it is is because we have to remember who's writing this. There's a family tree for Jesus and Luke, but it goes a little different way. But in the Gospel of Matthew, if we remember who Matthew is, Matthew is a guy who didn't really belong. Matthew was an outcast. Matthew was a traitor to his people. Matthew was someone that people didn't like, people didn't want to be around, people wanted to distance themselves from, people did not want to associate with him. It's the reason why our church is called Matthew's Table Church, is because we know when Matthew does come to follow Jesus, the first thing he does is he goes and, and invites all of the other sort of outcasts to come together around a table to see who Jesus really is. What we're called to see in this genealogy is to receive and believe the gift of Jesus, the gift of his family love. But the only way that we can do that is we must remember and be real about the great family line of Jesus. So the first thing we see in here is this beautiful promise that many of us are familiar with, but it may even be better at Christmas. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now you may not see this, you may just see the word genealogy, but behind that word genealogy is the word Genesis. And Matthew's readers, particularly those of a Jewish background, would have heard that word with a whole history of information and anticipation and promise behind it. One commentator wrote, The translation of the Old Testament that many were reading in Matthew's time read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, This is the book of the Genesis, exact same word, of heaven and earth. In Genesis 5, 1, again, the same verse. The book, this is the book of the genesis of human beings. And then it goes and lays out this genealogy. The first century Bible 
already had the title Genesis for the first book of the Bible. Now for the first book of the New Testament, another Genesis is happening. A new creation. A new anticipation of a world where God sends forth His Son to set all things right. To make all things new. The book of the Genesis, the creation, the restoration, the transformation of all the world by Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but there's no, there's, it's no coincidence. I don't know if Matthew's a literary genius or the Holy Spirit speaking through him, but it's, it begins here, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we'll, how will this book end? With the great commission that is telling God's people to go out, not just to Israel, but to where? To all the nations. That this promise of God that first was given in the garden and then was given to Abraham and then came through David would extend to the ends of the earth with no exception. He's the son of David. We'll come back to this because he is the Christ the anointed one, the Messiah, the one all the world had waited on. But he's also the son of Abraham. Jesus will be presented in these first two chapters and in this whole book as the one who brings all the promises of God to their fulfillment. We'll see him just like Israel going down to Egypt. We'll see him just like Israel going into waters. Just like Israel coming out of those waters, being told by God in Exodus, you are my son, we'll see him declare from the heavens over the son of God, you are my son. We'll see just like in Isaiah 42, where the word of the hope of the Davidic king is, this is my anointed son in whom I am well pleased, those same words spoken to Jesus as he comes out of the waters. Then we'll see Jesus, no coincidence, out of Egypt, through the waters, and next where will he be led? into the wilderness. But unlike Israel in the wilderness, who failed in their grumbling and their faithlessness and the temptations, Jesus will be faithful. Where all others have failed in the fulfilling of God's promises in the history of redemption, whether Abraham, whether Israel, whether Adam, whether David, Jesus will bring the promises of God to us. He will not be another letdown. Hope has come. When I think back on my Christmases, I remember one year. It was a special year. We had great Christmases, but I remember one year, I don't know how old I was, eight, nine, ten, and I came into the living room and there was a motorcycle. A, a Shiny red Honda 50. We actually still have it. And I look like Dumb and Dumber riding around the yard. First time Cassie got on it, she just ran it straight into a building. That's funny too. I just had to add that to encourage her this morning. And, it, and it's almost like every Christmas now has been calibrated around that event. You know, like the Christmas where it actually lived up to the hype. But what's the problem with that? The problem is, is when you actually experience something that lives up to the hype, now you judge everything according to that experience. This is sort of how Israel lived. They look back to these promises. Like, remember the days of David. 
Remember the days of the kingdom. Remember the days when we enjoyed life, where we enjoyed one another. But ever since that time, all Israel's history had really been is mainly one long list of failures and one long list of letdowns. Even in this genealogy, there are good kings that arise and things go well for a time. But just wait. Go read the books of First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. The next guy's going to come in. He's going to ruin it all. And this genealogy finds the people of God not experiencing the blessings of God, but in exile, even in their own land. Yeah, they're back in their own land, but the Romans are ruling over them. They can't do anything without another government's permission. This was not the way it's supposed to be. But from the very beginning of the book of Matthew, in the very first line of this genealogy, the note of hope is rung. The one who brings new creation out of disease and death is here. The one who brings saving power over our sin is here. The great Davidic king who will rule and reign justly and righteously is here. The great son of Abraham who will bring blessing to all the nations is here. Out of darkness, light has come. One theologian, Carl Henry, says it this way, The early church did not say, Look what the world's coming to. They said, look what has come into the world. This is the hope of Christmas. But if you're like me and you hear all of that hope, you start to feel this, this sinking feeling in your gut slipping in and you start to think, but look at my faithlessness. But look at my sin, my suffering, my family history, my family present. And we start to think, you know, I, that's all good for y'all to talk about. But does that really include me? Does that really include me? I, I thought as I thought, thought about this, there's that scene in the, the Christmas story, Charles Dickens. My reference to that is the Mickey Mouse one. Whatever, so I don't know if this is in the real story. But there's a part where he's looking back on his past after now he's an old, bitter, lonely man. And he's standing outside the window and he's watching everybody enjoy this wonderful Christmas party. They're happy, they're warm, they're eating, they're dancing. And he's just outside the window watching. And I think if we're honest, even those of us, sometimes we feel like I'm actually in the party, but I feel like I'm on the outside because I'm just having to pretend to be here. But some of you maybe actually feel like, no, that's how my life is. Everybody gets to enjoy the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, but kind of here I am on the outside because I'm one of these people that just doesn't fit there. And that's why we have to go to the second part. There's not just this beautiful promise that surrounds us at Christmas in Christ, but there's this broken path. So we might surprise, think, the only way that I go from looking on the outside of the window is going to the inside of the window, into the party, is I've got to fit a certain type of person. Maybe I've got to be one of those good people who always does the right thing, and life is under control, and I take control. Or maybe I've got to be one of those real loving people who's always helping everybody and giving gifts to them. Or one of those beautiful people who has the right image and the right success. Or maybe I've got to be one of those real authentic people. You know, I'm down with the commercialization of Christmas. You know, let's burn all the trees and just fast and pray because Christmas is about the incarnation. 
Or maybe I've got to be one of those super knowledgeable people, you know, who's like, you know, technically the wise men shouldn't be in your manger scene because they came two years later. And that's how I'll justify myself. Or maybe I've got to be one of those loyal people who I never let anybody down and I keep everybody safe. Or maybe I've got, the only way I really get to be in the parties, I'm the funnest person. I make, it, I make this the best Christmas ever. Or I'm one of those powerful people who has influence, tells people how to get things done. And at the Christmas party, they'll be telling you all they accomplished this year and all they're going to do the next. Or I'm one of these super peaceful people who's just like, I'm just going to make sure there's no conflict around me. And we, and, we, and we peg ourselves, what kind of person should I be or do I have to be so that I'm not on the other side of the window? And so what many of us do because of that, we can't live up to that. Other people can't live up to that. And so we just say, I just got to cl- cross my fingers and survive getting through this next month. Or I just give up and I quit. Why even try? Or I gave up and quit a long time ago. Matthew has good news for us. And if we think about the purpose of this genealogy, of course one big purpose is the legitimization of the fact that Jesus comes through David's line. For him to be the Savior that we need, to be the fulfillment of the promises of God, he's got to be a descendant of David, he's got to be a descendant of Abraham. That's definitely a part of it. The second part of this is there's some people in this genealogy that are not Jewish by natural born descent. And so to get to his main point that he's going to hit at the end of the book, go and make disciples of all the nations, he's going to show from the very beginning God has included people from the nations into the promises of God through their faith. But there's a third purpose that we've touched on already that I think really is just hard for anybody to dispute even though it's not mentioned a lot is there's the legitimization that is that this is real, this is legitimate that Jesus is not only descended from David that there's not only Gentiles that are involved in this but what about the people who are jacked up? What about the people whether you're Jew or Gentile and your life is just messed up? It just feels like one big catastrophe. Do we get a seat at the Christmas table too? I think Matthew is writing this book and this genealogy to those people who are sitting at his table when we come to chapter 9. And he is saying, Christmas is for you too. Not just the shiny, happy people. Not just the pretty, polished people. Jesus has came for sinners. Jesus has came for sufferers. Now why do I think this? First off, this genealogy in no way that makes us doubt the, the inerrancy or integrity of Scripture is not exact in, in all that it goes through. No, Matthew is taking his literary liberty here and he is forming a very intentional genealogy. It doesn't have like every single name in the family tree. It is crafted with, with great beauty and skill. We're going to see 14, 14, 14. We're going to see there's seven series of sevens with Jesus being the seventh seven. Certain names are chosen, other names are left out, and side notes are added. We don't have time to go through all this, but even if you just think, first of all, of some of these men, Abraham. You read the story of Abraham, and if you go there looking for a perfect, polished hero, you're going to be surprised. 
Abraham does trust God's promises and leave and live by faith that God will give him a son who will bear the promises of God. But as Abraham gets older in his life and he starts to doubt God's promises, this is what Abraham does. Is Abraham says, hey Sarah, my wife, I know God promised us that he was going to give us a son, but I'm tired waiting. What if I go have sex with our handmaid and she gets pregnant and we just call that the son of God's promise? And then once they have the baby... Sarah and Hagar, Sarah's jealous, and Abraham's like, okay, Sarah, we'll just kick her out now. That's, that's messed up. That's messed up. You, you, you have this, your, your servant have a baby for you, and then when your wife gets jealous, you kick her and the baby to the curb to just go live out in the wilderness? And yet we read that Abraham through faith was counted righteous before God. We could say more about Abraham's lives. We, we can't do all of these, but Jacob. You remember Jacob? First off, Jacob is not the firstborn son in this line. It's Esau. Esau should have been the one who received the promises. He, you know, you'd think this would say, and, and Isaac, the father of Esau. But no, Jacob. How did Jacob... Get the birthright. Well, he dressed up like his brother. He put animal fur on his arms because his brother was hairy. And so when dad's given the blessings at his death, Jacob walks in there, you can just imagine, taking advantage of his, of his father. This would be like today you going to, some, to your grandma and pretending like you were somebody else because she's not right in the head and getting her to sign the property over to you. How do you feel about somebody who does things like that? That's bad, isn't it? And this guy is a schemer. He's a liar. He's a trickster. And yet he wrestles with God and finds blessing through him. Then we find Judah. And then we see Judah, you know, blessed as the king will come from your lines. Genesis 49. But do you realize Judah's there when Joseph's being sold into slavery? Judah's one of these brothers who says, why don't we take our young brother here who talks too much and says he's better than all of us. I kind of go along with this idea of us throwing him in a ditch in a well and telling dad he's dead. Judah's right there. And then we've got Boaz, though, who this beautiful redeemer... We have Solomon, the wisest king ever, and yet, do you remember how many wives Solomon had? Like 700 to 1,000? And then all these extra concubines on the side? And how he fell into idolatry? Then you have Rehoboam. He was a good yet flawed king, and under his leadership, this is where the kingdom of Israel is split. Then you have Uzziah, another good king. You have Manasseh. Just go read about Manasseh. Yikes. This is a wicked, wicked king. Reinstates idolatry like many of the kings did. And then you have Josiah. Josiah is a great king. And I want to stop and say this because as we look back through this, I'm trying to emphasize one side of this, but there's some good kings here too. There's good, there's bad, it's mixed. That's the point. We're all mixed in here. Good, there's bad. 
We hope our children grow up and they have a, a good story to tell of how they knew God's love from a young age. We hope they all have stories like Josiah. But the reality is whether you have the good story like Josiah or you have the story like Jacob, is there's hope. Then you have Jeconiah as it comes to the end here, and there's some debate around this, but Jeconiah was a bad guy. Jeconiah was a guy in the time of exile that was basically like, you don't even get to be, say, your king anymore. Like, we don't even want you to be in the family tree. It's kind of like we're disowning Jeconiah, but here he is. One commentator says, the goal is to evoke the end of the Davidic kingdom with the collapse of the nation. That's why this name is mentioned. It's like, to all human appearances this is a hopeless train wreck of a family tree apart from the grace of God some were wicked some were faithful but apart from God's grace the promises of God that we read about in verse 1 fail and then we come to the women in the text this is again another sign here of what Matthew's doing. There was no reason for these women to be involved in this genealogy. No reason. It didn't happen. It didn't matter. Their witness was not even accepted in court at the time. And yet Matthew's like, I'm not going to put just one female name in here. There's going to be five female names in here. And, and, and again, no, no disrespect to, to Sarah, to Rachel, to Rebecca. If you don't know, that's other wives here that maybe we think about more often when we think of these stories. Why didn't Matthew put them in there? He could have, and we respect them and their place in the history of redemption. But instead he puts this name, verse 3. Tamar. Most think Tamar was a Canaanite or an Aramean. But i got to give you a little bit of the backdrop, because why is Tamar's name in here? Why is Matthew wanting to say that if he's legitimizing not only the line to David, but the, but the inclusion of the outcast around the table? Tamar had two husbands who died before she was able to give birth to a child. And so Tamar goes to Judah, and they, can, they come up with an arrangement where Judah says, I'm going to have one of my sons marry you and bear you a child. So I'm going to make sure you have a husband and you have a child. Well, guess what Judah does? Judah lied to her. Judah didn't keep his promise. And guess what Tamar does? Tamar then goes and pretends to be a prostitute. So she goes and sets up shop on the corner, dressed like a prostitute, but has her face covered. And Judah takes the bait. And they have twins. Perez. And, Hed and Perez and Zerah. Would you, I mean, this is, this is a kind of weird, warped scenario of prostitution, borderline incest, deception, and Matthew says, putting her name there. 
If you have a high view of the scripture and the Spirit's inspiration of it, ultimately the Spirit of God said her name's there. Some of you have things like that in your past. Maybe sexual abuse. Maybe some type of sin that you would not want to share. And God has put Tamar here. Then in verse 5, there's Rahab. Rahab also was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite prostitute who, when the, the spies went in to look at the city, we see that she puts her faith in God. Now, I don't have time to, to do a whole study on Rahab. She puts her faith in God and then assists the Israelite spies in their mission. The Spirit of God says, let's put her name there. Do you realize that Rahab is Boaz's mother? And then you have Ruth. Ruth was a godly Moabitess woman who came to faith in God and told Naomi, her mother-in-law, that even when her, when her husband died, Naomi's son, that she was going to follow her back to Israel and give her life and find her identity in the things of God. It's a beautiful story of redemption. But if you go read the book of Ruth, it is a story with a broken background. It's the story of a, of a, of a girl who trusts God, who goes and works in the fields and does this menial labor just so she can provide for her family a little something to eat by taking the scraps from the corners of the field and yet finds love and redemption through Boaz, but ultimately through the God of redemption. And then in verse 6 we see here the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah is none other than Bathsheba. Solomon's mother Bathsheba, who was taken by David, and we don't know, the text doesn't tell if, if she was complicit or consensual in what happened, but we know that Bathsheba's life was totally wrecked because David the king used his power to, to just take what wasn't his. It's what Nathan the prophet says. You see this lamb over here, it's somebody else's wife, and you go and take her and make your own, and then what did David do? So bringing Uriah up, you know, you got to imagine the readers being like, why'd you have to bring up Uriah? We're talking here about David and the great Davidic kingdom. And you've got to bring up Uriah. That just reminds us that David committed adultery. Then David committed murder. murder. David had Uriah killed because he wanted to cover up his sin. The Spirit of God through Matthew is just bringing all this to the surface. And he's saying, look at this broken background. Look at this family history. Look at this generational sin and this generational suffering because we know that through David's sin, all kinds of things in that family is just going to go wrong. But Christmas comes for all. This is the time of Christmas plays. We don't have a Christmas play. I don't even know how we do that in this time of corona. But I miss it, right, to a certain degree. Kids getting to dress up like shepherds and angels and animals. That's wonderful. Somebody ever wants to do that, go for it. But some of us maybe got to play Mary and Joseph and others of us never did. Maybe that's a scar in your life. Sometimes you're like, 
you just be a sheep. Or they're making up stuff. You dress up like an angel. You get to be a shepherd. I think that's what I always was. I just kind of stood in the back as a shepherd. But it was nice getting to wear those clothes that, you know, they had stuck in the Sunday school room all year long that smelled like mothballs or whatever. Some of us might be the type that say, I deserve the good role. And others of us might be the type, I don't even deserve to be on the stage. As I read this, I couldn't help but think, and I know we have some artists in here or around here, where are all these folks at in the nativity? As we see Mary and Joseph and Jesus sitting there, there's this whole background of people. Like what would it be like for, for you to create a, a painting or a nativity set that maybe just behind, around it was Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Abraham, Jacob. The reality of Christmas is there's all those people that are there a part of that story. Reminding us that however great our sin, we have a greater Savior. That no matter how broken our past, the one who has came to make all things new has came for everyone. There's a seat at the table. There's a place in the nativity for the broken, for the burnout, for the bored, that God is not paralyzed by your past, your past sin, your past suffering. He's not paralyzed by whatever you're in the middle of right now. However big it is, however broken it is, He is better and He is enough. And He's not asking you to deny it. He's not asking you to fake it. He's putting these names on this genealogy so you can step into it with hope. But we must bring our history, past, present, and future, under this hope. You can't write it out. You can't deny the generational issues, things that were done to you, things you did to other people. You got to tell the truth. If you're the non-commercialization person of Christmas, this is a way you can go there. It's really a way we can all go there. Take some time this Christmas season to write your Christmas story, your Christmas genealogy, as it were, your sins and your suffering, and then bring them to Jesus. Bring them to the one who came for you, who came for all that stuff. Write it out, but don't write yourself out. There's people in this room, there's people in our neighborhood who have written themselves out of the hope of Christmas. Maybe because they've not celebrated for years. Maybe some of you because you've celebrated but you've not even really been present for years. But Jesus is saying through this genealogy, don't write yourself out of it. Don't write yourself out of the hope. And he's asking us to not write other people out. It's easy for us to say that we identify with these sinners, but what about, the, what about the people they sinned against? 
Christmas can bring up a lot of bitterness in a lot of us because we start to remember people who didn't care like they should have cared. If we do this, if we write out the names, if we tell the stories and we bring them to Jesus, what we've got to see is Jesus is there to forgive us, but Jesus is also asking us to stand in a posture of forgiveness for other people. Not in some watered-down way that says what they did didn't really matter. No, it really mattered. But in a way that takes that posture that prays with Jesus through the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive those, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. It may be this Christmas, part of what you're led to do is to reach out to somebody you've not talked to in a long time. It may mean you need to ask someone else to forgive you. It may need you need to just go ahead and give them and, and adopt that position of forgiveness that has you ready if they ever come to ask you for that transaction of forgiveness. Who would you be tempted to write out of your story, of this story? Maybe David. Maybe you hear what David did and you're like, you're dead to me. Maybe you hear what Tamar did and you think, dead to me. Maybe it's Abraham. I don't know who it is, but all of us probably have somebody, if we're honest, who we've kind of said, you're dead to me. As we experience the grace of God in the dead places of our own heart, He's calling us to stand in readiness to experience grace given to others. Because this is the only way. Just like in this text, as we come to the last verse, verse 17, this is the only way that we can have a Christmas story where Jesus is the hero. So the big finish is verses 16 and 17. Verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to... Well, first off, time out. We didn't even mention Mary. That was the fifth woman, right? But we're going to get to her more in the, next, in the next couple weeks. But Mary's there, big in the middle of all this. But we come to these verses and we see they're structured around these 14 generations. And at the center of these is the deportation to Babylon. That's the exile. So this is God's people have so broken the covenant with God, they're sent away... And Israel is barren, as it were. We didn't even talk about the barrenness behind so many of, of the people within this genealogy. That is the inability to actually have the children who bring forth God's promise, and yet God kept his promises alive. But what we see here is for Israel to have any hope, literally, the dead have to be raised. That's what this genealogy is showing here. Like, Israel has, has for all practical and visible purposes died. What could be worse than not only being taken away into exile, but actually in your own hometown, the place that's supposed to be the promised land is being ruled by a pagan, idolatrous Roman Empire. And this is why this note that is struck so clearly is that Jesus is the son of David, the Davidic king, even in the face of all of that oppression and all of that sin and all of that suffering. And this is why this number 14 is emphasized. I don't think this is being kooky Bible code stuff. First off, this whole line is emphasized David, Jesus is the son of David. But 14, if you take the Hebrew alphabet's numerical values, D, V, and D, and there's no vowels in Hebrew, if y'all don't know that, until somebody came along later and did all these dots. 
but D, V, and D equal 14. This is why Matthew's composed this genealogy in this way. And not only is it that, but if you go through and read here, it is fashioned again in these groups of seven, with Jesus being the one who is the seventh seven, and that is that ultimately brings the rest of God to the world. Would there be a king who could not only slay a giant for God's people, but a king who would be the son who would crush the head of the serpent? David came out of that battle with Goliath, holding his decapitated head in his hands. But Jesus is coming to kill the one who has the power of death, that is Satan. Jesus is coming to kill and take out the one who from the very beginning has been this great enemy of God's people. Jesus is coming to be the one to bring us victory over evil, the evil within us and the evil all around us. And that's why in this genealogy, just like in all of our genealogies, there is one name that is more important than all names, and that is the name of Jesus. I don't know what's in your past, and I don't know what's in your present. The Lord knows, but it, through faith in Jesus Christ, if His name is on that genealogy, then you are forgiven. If His name is on your genealogy, if you by faith have trusted in the finished work that He took care of on the cross and through His resurrection, then you have hope. Your life may still be hard. It may seem like the odds are stacked against you. You may still live with the consequences of your sin, but you can live with the knowledge that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can live with no guilt in life and no fear in death. You can become one of those people who is proud of their genealogy. You know those people who spend lots of money to do their family tree. I've got family members like that. I think that's great, by the way. I'm not being negative. But I remember going to college, and I went to college far away from here, Chicago, Illinois, and everybody had all of this family pride of like, not just like, I like my grandma, but like, I am from Dutch descent, or we are Germans, and all this stuff, and I was just like, my family's from LJ, Georgia? That's about all I know. What was Georgia, like a debtor's colony or something, where they sent people from England who, who owed money to get them out of the country? And you may look back in your family tree and you may look at yourself or your lack of family around you right now and you might think, man, I got nothing to show. I got nothing to celebrate this Christmas. But the good news of Matthew, this genealogy, is Jesus' name is there. And because Jesus' name is there, you, can, you can, can tell the truth about who you are, but celebrate in the reality of who He is. Father, we thank You today for this good news. We pray now as we come to the table that you would help us to rest in the finished work of our great King who has come. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you'd just close your eyes for a second to reflect. If you're new with us, each week we respond to God's word by coming to the Lord's table. We'll pull out some tables and circle around them. We'll have a few of those out. There'll be someone there to lead you, but basically it's just an opportunity for those who are followers of Jesus 
to rejoice in his finished work as we eat of the bread and take of the cup. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can still come stand with us and, and share maybe ways you need to be prayed for or just listen. Nobody has to share that doesn't want to. But above all, we would want you to take Jesus, to put your faith in him, not to wait till you get yourself cleaned up or you have your act together to fit some type, but just to say, Jesus, you are my hope. I trust in your finished work. I trust in your life for me, your death for me, and your resurrection for me. We have a few questions that help us share when we come to the table. The first is, what, what idols, what other gods, what other things do I need to bring to the table, maybe to confess, and yet ultimately to believe that Jesus is better? What wounds, what pains from my past or my present do I need to bring to Jesus and celebrate his healing power? What lies? What lies are embedded in your head or your heart that you're not enough, that you don't fit, that you're not welcome to the table? Or whatever else it may be, do you need to bring and receive the promise of Jesus that we've seen in this genealogy? That everyone, no matter their background, no matter their sin, no matter their suffering, can find redemption in the greater grace of God. Reflect for a moment, then we'll come to the table.